Hi, everyone. I'm Michelle Jobin, and you are listening to Time to Talk, a podcast for caregivers. This podcast is dedicated to helping family caregivers in Ontario. Through expert tips and resources, you will gain knowledge and validation for the ups and downs that come with caregiving. More importantly, you'll learn that you're not alone. It's so important to take this time for yourself. We're glad you're here. Today, we have teamed up with finance expert, Shannon Lee Simmons. Shannon is an award-winning certified financial planner, speaker, chartered investment manager, author, and founder of the New School of Finance. Her two books, Worry-Free Money and Living Debt-Free, are bestsellers. She is a personal finance writer for the Globe and Mail, as well as CBC Radio's Metro Mornings money columnist and financial expert on the Marilyn Dennis Show. Shannon, thank you so much for being here today. I am so looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. I want to start with a term, and that is financial literacy. How do you define that and why it is important, not just to caregivers, but to everybody? That's a great question, because I think we hear the term financial literacy tossed around a lot, and I think it does mean something different to everyone. So over, you know, I've been on the front lines of financial planning for over a decade, and I think to me at this point, financial literacy isn't about like knowing what the definition of like a stock or a bond is or or how that works and uh, all the intricacies of like, you know, the stock market or the bond market or the debt and everything. I think financial literacy to me means that you have the confidence that you can make good financial decisions as long as you get certain pieces of key information and that you feel empowered that you have the resources available to get the information you need to make those choices. Because I think it's impossible for us to know everything about money. I don't even know everything about money. There's new financial products that come out every minute, new online banks, everything. You can be an expert in all things money, but not know you know how many sweepstake points are on, on, on a visa card that just came out from one of the big banks, right? So it's not about those kinds of details. It's about feeling like you are able to navigate your financial life and you have the tools and just need to know what information you need to get. So I think that's the literacy piece. I absolutely agree. I think that's so important. I know that not speaking specifically to caregivers, but I know that I started my adult life not knowing anything. And I had a credit card too early and I had student loans and I, you know, and I just sort of thought all this was sort of a free for all. I made decisions that were not the most confident because of that in my, you know, late teens and early twenties. So just having that kind of basic know-how is so important for everyone. And when it comes to our caregivers, they just have such an extra layer on that, not only for themselves, but for the person perhaps potentially that they are providing care for. I know that you've often referred to the term financial micro planning. So what is this style of financial planning? And why is is it effective specifically for caregivers? Yeah, I I use it a lot when I have people whose life is in flux or when they're not sure um, what comes next. And so often for any of my clients who have recently become a caregiver, like if you've been a caregiver for 10 years, it's less so that you're not in that necessarily, oh my gosh, crisis mode where you're not entirely sure what, what life looks like three months from now. You know, sitting down with somebody whose life is in flux because major life changes just happened, making a plan even, you know, three months from now could be completely obsolete. So often I'll say to someone, especially within that caregiving space, if you don't know what three to six months looks like right now, that's okay. Why don't we worry about the next three to six weeks? Because by using a micro timeline, like three to six weeks, 
can cut out a lot of the noise and anxiety that can come from making, trying to make bigger plans with so much uncertainty and get really focused on what you can and can't control. And it's, it's a lot easier to predict things within, you know, a three week period than a three month period. And so it makes you feel a little bit calmer. I also say using micro goals, which is like, okay, so let's say that our micro timeline is three weeks. What are some of the actions that we can take within the next three weeks? Not three years, not three months, just like the next three weeks. What information do we need? So instead of a goal being like, I need to figure out, you know, how I'm going to afford a personal support worker for, you know, my family member, it becomes like, the next three weeks, I'm going to reach out to two colleagues that I know who've been through something similar. It takes the goal, which is massive and, and feels potentially insurmountable and breaks it into tiny micro actions over a very short period of time to keep you putting one foot in front of the other towards the bigger piece without the like potentially, you know, crushing anxiety that can come when you're dealing with such high stakes and such uncertainty that, you know, caregiving, especially if you're new to caregiving, that's really something that, that happens there. So that's why I love to use those micro timelines. I think it takes us out of panic mode just for a moment. I think with what you've just said that you're really going to soothe the anxieties and some of the fear that a lot of our caregivers might have, because as I referred to before, my own personal story, I started my adult life with this perfect financial picture, but a lot of us don't. So I think a lot of us get to the point sometimes where if we haven't done things perfectly, we're given that message that, oh, well, why didn't you financially plan for all of these possibilities to happen into your life? But a lot of us just aren't there. So I think your suggestion of making things into these bite-sized manageable chunks where we can, okay, let's tackle this, then tackle this, then tackle this is a really great thing. I think it just, it's so overwhelming. And so it kind of takes away that feeling of overwhelm. And I think that it gives people a purpose where you can actually take action. Cause sometimes it feels like you might be spinning your wheels. If you're, if there's so like this mess is so big and so deep and so tall, like I don't even know where to start. And so it allows you to be like, okay, well, I only have to do this for the next like three weeks. Like, okay, I can, I can manage that. I know what the next three weeks kind of looks like in my life and for this person. And like, I can do these small things. So that to me is like one of the first things to do. If you're, I, I call it kind of like a decision crisis where there's so many decisions to be made, like really difficult decisions at a really difficult time. There's really no one size fits all situation when it comes to caregiving. There are so many variables. So I think that's really something to keep in mind that you can't necessarily plan that far in advance for some things. No, or compare yourself to others. Yeah, that's a really big one, I think, that many of us might fall into. So it's definitely peace of mind to know that there are ways to sort of manage these things in smaller chunks. What do you feel are the first steps to taking control of one's finances? So I think the word control is an important one because uh, money especially is is a touchy subject because it is time and money are like, you know, life's big constraints because if money wasn't an object, then there's no decision making that needs to happen. Right. Uh, so we could just do whatever it is that we felt like was the right choice and we wouldn't have to worry about any of the outcomes, but that's not necessarily the case. And so making things feel like they're within your control is really important and focusing on what you can and cannot control. So in order to get control of your finances, you need to first of all, figure out what is it within your control and what isn't within your control, right? So I'll do a big example and then I'll break it down for somebody who's in a caregiving position. So for example, this is something that even if you're not investing, I think the analogy works. You can control how much money goes into your retirement account every single month. So you can, you know, you can do your budget, you can see, and you can set up an automatic transaction, you can't control what the stock market's going to do. So there is a lot of things in money where there are some things that are within the realm of things that you, you can do something about. And then otherwise you just have to surrender to the randomness and have faith in the long-term plan. 
And so on like a a very micro level, the first steps to getting control of your finances, I think, is to sit down and look at it. And I know that that sounds so silly, but for so many people, I think if, if you're not in a great financial situation, then often looking at your finances. So, you know, the analogy I used to use is like opening the credit card statement, but that's like, you know, not a lot of people open their mail with the credit card statement anymore. So what I mean now is like logging onto your bank, looking at the transactions, dealing with that money piece. Fear is huge. And there, when you're in a position where your life is in flux and you're anxious, adding one more layer of anxiety about your financial situation feels like, nope, (laughs) I'll deal with that later because the fear of it is so great. And so a lot of times what I'll say is like, you know how like in the eighties with like the monster and like a Stephen King movie or something, once you actually see it, you're like, oh, it's just bad CGI. And it's not that scary. It was way more scary in my head. I feel like money often is very much like that. We build it up in our own head so that we don't want to look at it. We don't want to deal with it. And and it's scarier than we think. And then often most times what happens is we map something out and someone's like, oh, well, I didn't realize I still had options. I thought I didn't have options. And that's because panic makes us have this like black and white trade-off thinking. So the first thing you want to do is like map it out. You need to figure out what's coming in, what's going out. I know, again, like that sounds simple, but looking at all the income sources that are available to you. So are there government programs? Is there anything like that that you can do that to increase and boost that money that's coming in? And then looking at all of your expenses, where is my money actually going? Like, where does it go? And where do I think it has to go now that I'm a caregiver? And now that I'm in this new situation, what actually changes? Because again, the fear of, oh my gosh, I'm going to go broke, or I'm not, I'm going to be destitute, or I I don't know how I'm going to afford this. Maybe there are ways that you can, and maybe it's not as scary as you thought, or maybe it's just different than what you thought. And so actually taking the time to sit down and map out what's coming in, what's going out, and what do I think is going to change is the first step to getting control. Because once you have those three pieces of information, you can start to make plans. Without those three pieces of information, it's all up in the air and everything continues to feel like it's spiraling. Yeah, I think the the conscious act of sitting down and actually looking at the numbers, whether it's on an app, because there's so many of those available today, or some online banking, they have built the ability to break down how you are spending your money, or do old school, like my dad used to do and write it all out. You know, he had a ledger book that he kind of kept track of everything. It's really a conscious choice that you can make to kind of just not being like covering your eyes and throwing money or credit into the universe and not really looking at the repercussions of it, I guess. Yeah, I think that can often when we're in a situation where we're feeling worried about money, not paying attention to money makes things astronomically worse because you're, you're layering on that. Oh my God, what if, what if, what if without, because you're not sure if, I mean, maybe it was totally fine. And maybe like you, there's no reason to worry about the money that you just spent. But if you don't know, every transaction feels crippling and terrifying. The Ontario Caregiver Organization has created a series of free webinars to help caregivers in their role. From financial planning for caregivers to mental health, these webinars provide support and resources to caregivers across the province on a wide range of topics. Our goal is to help ease the everyday stresses and challenges of being a caregiver. You're not alone. We're here for you. Register for an upcoming webinar today at ontariocaregiver.ca. Let's dig a little deeper in terms of how things might break down for caregivers. What are some potential financial red flags that caregivers need to watch out for? 
so I often use the analogy of like, you know, um, being on a plane and you know how, you know, the, you put the mask on yourself first and then you help, you help other people. And I think that being a caregiver, I think that's a very, like financially speaking, I think that's an important piece there because you're not going to, the whole reason in the plane that that's happening is that you can't actually help someone if you are not on steady ground yourself. If you can't breathe, you can't help someone else. And so with your money, it's the same. If your financial life falls to pieces, then you're not going to be able to provide that caregiving for too long because you're going to fall apart too. Because our financial stability means that we are less stressed. We have less on our plate. We have more coping skills. We have a lot more patience. We have not as much anxiety by the time you even just wake up in the morning. So your capacity to, to help others is there and greater. Whereas when we're in scarcity mindset all the time, which happens when our finances are in flux, you know, we don't have those coping skills. We have black and white trade-off thinking we are, we are not taking care of ourselves. So I think that knowing what those red flags are is a way of almost like self-care for somebody who's a caregiver. And I, I would say the first one that I would say is just doing a gut check with yourself. So let's assume that you know what's coming in, you know what's going out, you know what the expected costs are going to be. You've got like a, a plan. Okay, so you've taken that first initial step and you've got this plan about how you're going to navigate it over a short period of time on, the, on our micro timeline. How do you feel? And I don't know that we think about that with money a lot, but I think we know more about like intuitively about our money than we give ourselves credit for. So if you've done the work and you've made the plan and everything feels like it's still terrifying or not okay, then that's a red flag because it doesn't matter what the numbers say. If you feel scared and afraid all the time, that's going to breed resentment and it's going to take up headspace and bandwidth for patients. So how do you feel? is really important. So if you feel really scared and negative, then the work isn't done on the financial plan, the plan's not working and we need to rejig it. So number two, I think the other thing to check in is with the actual numbers. So are you in a situation where you're taking on debt? And I think that taking on debt should be a red flag. And that doesn't mean that you need to stop or that you can't do it, but I think you need to pay a lot of attention. So if you're going into debt, how long? Is it a short period of time? Okay, so if it's a short period of time, so I'm going to go into debt. It's going to be this much. I know it. It's a, we're making a very empowered choice. Cool. And once that period of time is done, we'll make a plan to get tackle it together. That's all good. So I'm not saying that debt is like, oh my gosh, that's it. You're done. I'm just saying you should be paying close attention to how long that's going on for. Is it indefinite? Because that's, that's a big problem. If you have an indefinite shortfall, then bigger pivots in your life need to happen to like make room for this new life that you are now living. And then the last one I think is, I think you need to look at that long-term trajectory piece for yourself, because even though it, a lot of it is out of your control, still depending on how old you are, like if you're five years out to retirement, it's a bit more predictable, but if you're 20 years out to retirement, I mean, there's so much could change in your life over 20 years, but I think knowing that whatever's happening to you right now is not going to dictate your financial security down the road is important for you to sleep at night. So yes, it's going to change things, but it might just be a smaller thing. Like it may not be, you know, this is it for me now. Like if you, so I guess what the flag is, if you hear yourself using language, like, well, this is just the way that it is financially for me, or like, I'm just a person with debt or like, I'm bad with money or like, I'm screwed. Like those kinds of self-talk about money, that's a red flag because it means that you're starting to believe that those things are going to happen. It means you don't have hope for the long-term outcome of your finances. And when you don't have hope, that's when you start to fall into panic mode more often. All right, let's talk about something that is often mentioned when it comes to financial planning or just planning for life in general, and that is the emergency fund. Do we need one? How long of an emergency fund do we need to plan for? What are your thoughts on this? 
I have a couple of answers here. So I can give you the, like the one I'm supposed to say, which is, which is like, you know, three months of expenses saved up for a rainy day plus insurance. But if you're in a situation where you just, you mentioned this earlier in the show, if you haven't done that and you're in an emergency, like me touting about an emergency fund at this point is completely useless and shameful almost. So I like, it feels shamey. So I will say this, if you're listening to this podcast and you have the ability to build an emergency fund, that's wonderful. I think emergency funds are like a warm blanket of calm. They make you feel like you are in control in a way that nothing else can. So I think that that, and they keep you out of debt. That's the whole purpose of an emergency fund is to keep you out of debt. So if you are in a situation where you can build one up, I often don't think that there's like a certain number because what you might need in your emergency account is totally different than mine, right? So the cost of my life, my expectations, what what's coming in is different. So I would say you want to get yourself to a situation where you could essentially live your life without, without any money coming in whatsoever for like six to eight weeks. So like two months, that would be, if you can get yourself to that point and that's basic life, that's not like, you know, takeout, I'm talking groceries, gas, and like your bills. And if you can get to that point, let's say it was like $5,000 or something like that. Then at that point, I kind of think of that $5,000 as like your cushion. It's like, that's your new zero. And then the other, the other strength to do here is like, then just on, at that point, you just make sure you're putting a small amount into that account every month, like say $50, hundred dollars, whatever you can afford $20 above that new zero, because things are going to come up and you're going to use it. So I had this one client, he, you know, dutifully put aside 50 bucks a month and then came to me, you know, a year later and was like, Oh, I'm so frustrated. Like I've been putting my $50 aside into my emergency account, but then like, you know, my laptop broke and then this happened and this happened. And so it's like, it's still at $5,000. And I was like, yay, it worked. And he was like, oh, I didn't think about it like that. So like the whole point of putting money in there is to use it for an emergency. So you don't put it on debt. And so that's the kind of two parts that I think about emergency funds. Emergency accounts are one of the most important things I do with financial planning with people before they're in an emergency or before they're in a crisis. That's really the point. If I can get to people before they're in a crisis, that confidence will carry them through that crisis. But if you're in a situation where you're in a crisis or you're in a financial emergency and you don't have that emergency account, that's okay too. Lots of people don't. They're really hard to build. They take time. It's not like somebody wakes up and has like two months worth of living expenses in their, yeah, in their, uh, in their savings account. So if you're in a point where that is, then I would start to look at like, okay, well, what savings are available? Are there any savings? And then is there access to something that's like, you know, a lower interest line of credit, if it's a true emergency, you know, borrowing on that and trying to avoid credit cards at all, at all costs, if possible. Okay. And I assume that for an emergency fund, you would want something that would be easily accessible in terms of what kind of account it's in. Yes. Oh, great point. So a lot of people will often ask if like a tax-free savings account is a good place to have your emergency account. I I often say, no, I I like to use that for like more longer term, bigger, you know, savings because your emergency account should be boring, not invested, very easily accessible. Like you can just transfer it over. You don't have to worry about it and hopefully earning a little bit of interest. So like a high interest rate savings account is a great place to do that. And because interest rates are fairly low, uh, I mean, you don't have to pay tax on interest under, I think it's like $50 or something like that a year. And you're not going to be, your emergency account isn't going to be like your retirement account. So it's only, it's not going to earn that much interest every year that you have to worry about it being in a taxable place. Let's talk about the, because caregivers often have very different life situations and family situations. We know a lot of caregivers are parents as well to small children, in addition to taking care of other loved ones, or sometimes they're giving care to a child that has additional needs. 
There's a lot of different ways this can be um, made up, but how can a caregiver prioritize and plan for their own aging, presuming that they're also perhaps taking care of an elderly loved one, and also for saving for their children's education because so many caregivers are indeed parents as well. Yeah, the sandwich generation is a, that's a very tough situation financially to be in. There is no there is no right answer and there's no wrong answer. I would say that my blunt answer is do whatever you can to try to to try to make it work and understand that not one of those buckets is going to be done 100%. It's just it's almost impossible unless you're unless you're a millionaire and you've won the lottery. If you have parents that you're caregiving for, you have young children that you want to save for and your own retirement. I mean, what a tall order, right? Like that is a lot of buckets to fill. And so you might have to pivot some plans or expectations, whether it's of your life, or maybe you had the goal that you wanted your kids to go to school and never have to take on student debt. Well, that might, that, that expectation may have to change, right? And your own expectations about your home and where you live and like what you, and how, how you want to live and all those things there, there may come a point when it's just not financially feasible. I don't like to use the word sacrifices because it sounds very solemn. I usually just use the word pivot because pivoting just means we're changing directions. It's not necessarily a le- like we're letting go of. So again, that language that you use with yourself and how you describe what's happening to you financially is key. So pivoting expectations and pivoting plans, I think it's going to help to allow you to feel no guilt about whether it's expectations for children, expectations for parents, expectations for your own life. Let go of that like guilt and potentially like resentment of a situation if we don't feel like it's a sacrifice. And then I would say doing what we can to prioritize. So I'm coming back to that analogy of like making sure the mask is on you first and then helping other people. So making sure that you're not sliding into debt that you can't control, that's going to impact everybody yourself, your parents, or your aging, aging people in your life and little ones in your life. So once you've got that kind of sturdy ground at that point, I think it's needs-based. So really doing like a needs-based assessment too, for your values, for the values of other people and prioritizing based on after I know that I can stand up financially and, and I'm, I'm going to be okay. So I can breathe. How do I use these additional resources in my life and who needs it right now? And, and also giving permission to, you can change your plans. So let's say that, right, so you can do this for a year or so and then change. That's okay too. This is a a lot of times with money, we think we do projections, we run them out for 20 years, 30 years, like, oh my God, your life might change in like 30 months. So keeping that flexibility is important. It really only makes sense because it would really be wonderful once we set out on a path of financial planning that everything could just be static and everything could just run automated and be perfect. But life is a dynamic thing. Life is an ever-changing thing. So people really do need to be gentle with themselves. If they do need to be flexible or pivot or change somewhere on the long way when a major life event that they maybe didn't expect to happen happens. Exactly. I talk to my clients like about, about this all the time where it's like, imagine a road trip in Canada where it was like from St. John's, Newfoundland to Victoria, BC. And like, yeah, okay, we draw a straight line across the country and we're like, that's, we know you're going to BC. That's, that's fine. But we can't just be like, okay, every province is going to be the same. Every stretch of road is going to be the same. You just keep going 80 kilometers an hour. You'll make it there by this time. That's ridiculous. So like, what if you get a flat tire or like, what if you take a detour? What if you're tired one day? Or what if you get in an accident? Or like, there's all these things that can happen along the way in your road trip. So if you 
get a flat tire in New Brunswick. You don't call it quits and say, that's it. I'm never making it to BC. You just get it fixed. And you like pivot a little bit, you know, and like move the timeline around. And like, maybe you race through Manitoba. I don't know, but you, 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 so you figure out what, where you're willing to shift and reprioritize to make room for what's just happened in your life. All family caregivers face challenges, which is why the Ontario Caregiver Organization created the Peer Support Program. This program is a free resource where you can share your experiences with other caregivers to help build your confidence and make you feel more supported by those who understand what you're going through. Go to ontariocaregiver.ca to be matched with a peer mentor today. Remember, you're not alone. Now, back to our episode. You mentioned earlier that when people are looking at what resources they have or what might be available to them, that there may be government benefits or grants or money available, I might not be using the right term, that are available. So do you have any advice perhaps on those or what sort of tax benefits, for example, that caregivers can take advantage of? Because these can make a huge difference. Yeah. So the first thing that I'd say first and foremost is every anybody who's a caregiver needs to have a good accountant who understands their specific situation. So you need somebody who specializes. So finding other people in a similar situation to you, asking them who they use to do their taxes and whatnot, hugely important because that person is going to make sure like there is something called like the Canada caregiver um, credit, which is a new tax newer tax credit in Canada. Um, and there are other benefits. And, but the thing is these benefits and credits change with, with the budget, right? So it's possible that three years from now, listening to this, that, that credit might have shifted names or it doesn't, or the it's worth more now, or it's worth less more. And there could be new grants and, and those things change every year because of political parties. And so you need to have a professional in your life who gets it, who understands and is up to date so that you can trust that they're the person that's like, hey, you need to apply for this. This is what we need to make sure you're getting this benefit. And the other thing I would say is making sure that you're hooked up with some sort of association. One place that you trust that is a almost like an important resource that if there are new grants or programs or tax credits that are out there, you know that you're going to hear about it. You're subscribed to a newsletter so that you don't have to feel like you're the whole weight of making sure that you're in the know of all those programs is on you and you alone. And so like, you know, delegating that to a professional and delegating that to an association that you trust, I think are two things that can take the anxiety out of that. And then making sure that you've applied for all of those at tax time. Do you have any specific budget tips for caregivers? I think the specific budget tip would be for anybody really trying not to go into debt. So really trying to focus on bringing money in and the money that's coming in is enough for you to keep your head above water. I think that's our number one, like basic. And so how do you do that? What if you're not breaking even? So like, what are some of those more like, you know, reduction in expenses? I, a lot of times people will focus, financial experts will focus on, I call it the latte factor, but there's a lot of like shame and blame around like spending money frivolously on like pizza or takeout or whatever. But over the years, I've learned that making hard rules for yourself, like, okay, well, this used to be a thing, but now with the pandemic, it's not, but you know, people used to be like, I'll make my lunch every day and I'll never go out for lunch. Like that was like a huge one before. And now I find those kind of hard rules for yourself can help people, but also really hinder them and make them feel like failure. So whenever I'm trying to reduce expenses with somebody and go through all of the, the list of their expenses that they have, 
And we kind of look at them in two different ways. So there is expenses that are fixed. So like your rent or your mortgage, your, your cell phone bill, like maybe some minimum payments to a student loan or whatever it is that you're paying, the things that you have to pay, whether you like it or not, like you can't really get out of them, car payments, that kind of thing, insurance. And then there's the spending money, which is are things that are maybe not optional. You still have to buy groceries, you have to buy gas, but they change week to week. Like you don't really know what your grocery bill is going to be like three weeks from now, but you know what your rent's going to be. And so like, there's a, so it's not optional, but one of them is, flexible and it, it changes it can't be predicted and then the other one can and I go through and I rate these for on a scale of like one to five for like I call it emotional return on investment so you know is it is spending money on Netflix for example do you get like a high emotional return on investment from that or like have you not logged in for seven months you know someone's like that's a five out of five it's my entire life okay great but we're not going to cut that right so like me sitting here and being like cut your subscriptions you're not going to do that so why would I set you up for failure that's not a thing we can cut somewhere else it's less that's going to sting less for your life so trying to pinpoint those expenses in your life that when you think about it you're like wow I don't really use that or like I don't really care if that goes I'm so happy to like say goodbye to that kind of expense cut there first it makes it less painful and then really trying to make room for keeping the ones that would be like a five out of five emotional return on investment and then the other little tip that I would say is often we do focus when we talk about reduction in expenses we focus on the ones that are like I'm saying this in quotations, discretionary expenses or, or disposable income, which I hate as a term because no part of income should be disposable. None of my money is disposable. I have to, I need all of it. I, I should like live and buy groceries. So when we say disposable, it makes it feel frivolous or throw away or, or something like that. But what we usually focus there, but I actually think the bigger bang for your buck to make sustainable changes to your life financially are looking at those fixed expenses and where you can reduce there. So like, for example, can you consolidate debt and, and reduce a, like monthly payments that you have to make on the extreme side of things? You know, can you, if you have two cars that have two car payments, can you go down to one car? Like, can you figure something out there? And here's why those groceries, gas, you know, buying a pair of pants or whatever it is that are happening in those flexible expenses, it's harder to reduce them because they're not the same every month. Whereas something that's like, this is $300 a month and I just got rid of it. Well, now that's guaranteed back in your pocket. Yeah. Just looking at what you're spending, you know, you could have a higher cell phone plan than you actually need. So you can just, you know, call in or go online and see if there's something better for you. There's, there's lots of opportunities, I guess, to look at where they can make changes. That's right. So looking at those fixed expenses, especially being like, I'm not getting any benefit from this extra phone or whatever. Like this is a low thing for me. And then taking the time to reduce them and, and trying to prioritize reductions in fixed expenses first. They're, they are the biggest bang for your buck. Okay. Shannon, we're going to play a little bit of true or false right now. Ooh, yeah. Let's, okay. let's play true or false. This is, this is a bit of a unilateral statement, but true or false, it's too late to save for retirement. That really all depends on how old you are, I suppose, but never, never. Okay. That's good. Let's go with that. No, never. Because even if you're retiring next year, there might still be some things that you can do to set yourself up even small, like a little bit this year, like until next year. So, um, some strategic last minute debt consolidation or save up even just for an emergency account. And that's your only goal to see you through like I would still call that being part of the retirement savings plan because if you enter retirement with not as many assets as you wanted or you don't have a pension, which most people don't anymore, there might still be some small levers that you can pull to make yourself less worried and a smarter way to tap those assets that you do have saved up later on. So I think it's never too late to save for retirement. And I think that that kind of thinking is actually what leads to people giving up sometimes altogether because they're like, well, I'm retiring in like five years. What, what's 
what's a hundred bucks a month going to do for me? Nothing. Right. Cause they think about it on the big grandiose scale of like, when you hear people like myself, uh, I'm careful not to do this, but the, it often, you know, you need a million dollars in retirement, like that, that whole thing. You hear that in the radio, you look at your savings, you have $50,000. You think, well, okay, <laughs> I guess I won't try. And I think that that's one of the, the worst case situations for money, for anybody, not even just caregivers for anybody, because I have seen so many people now before retirement retired. And then on the other side of retirement, and there are still options. There's still lots of things that you can do. And we live in Canada where we have like CBP and old age security and guaranteed income settlement. There's, there is still hope. And I just, that's why I don't, don't love giving, you know, what do I need for retirement as a sweeping generalization? Because I think sometimes it leads to people just being, well, I'm never going to retire. I think a lot of those retirement related ads from financial institutions are meant to sort of create a bit of hysteria and a little bit of panic. So I'm 100%. happy happy that you said that because I remember seeing one when I was younger and I'm like, well, it's too late, but I have since started retirement savings and everything's fine and it can be you're absolutely gonna be fine. You're gonna be fine. That's good. Uh, true or false, personal finance is only about investing. Oh my gosh, no. So investment management is about investing. Personal finance is about everything that's, think about the word personal and finance is money. So your money, that's how I would. So everything that has to do with your money is under the umbrella of personal finance. So whether that's debt, whether that's budgeting, whether that is investing or insurance or, you know, estate planning or retirement planning or pool planning. I mean, all of it, wherever your money goes, that's personal finance. Okay, great. True or false. You need a lot of money to start investing. No, false, 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 false. So where that comes from, where that myth comes from is that old school way where I cut, you know, also where I cut my teeth in the investment management industry back back in the day uh, is to get access to um, investment counselors or portfolio managers, one needed to have, you know, a million dollars of investable assets. And then, so anybody who had a million dollars in their RRSP or TFSA or whatever, you got access to lower fees. You got access to financial planning and investment management and investment counseling and all that stuff. And then, so the everyday person who didn't have that was stuck with, you know, just going to into their bank branch and getting whoever was there that day. Right. So there was the, the myth came from like, well, if you really want financial, like customized financial planning from like a professional or, or from, you know, something like that, you need to have a lot of money to get it. But that's not true at all. There are so many more options now. There are, you know, online investors. There are people who are something called fee-only financial planners, which is what I am, where it doesn't matter if you have debt or $3 million, you it's you pay for time, which I, and so this, you know, we're not invested in where your money goes. So there's lots of other different ways that the model is done now so that you can invest and, and a lot of places have dropped their minimum investment as well. So that used to be, you know, you have to have this much money to invest with us. Well, a lot of people say, okay, well now it's like $5,000 or if you're so, or you need to do like a $50 a month or something like that. So I really think that knowing that there's other options out there than just that kind of old school model is really important because you want to start investing young when you have nothing. That's the point. Yeah, you can you can probably bear more risk at that point, I assume. 100%. True or false, an emergency fund should cover expenses for approximately 6 months. I I would love that in an ideal world for sure, but I I find that an unrealistic goal for the average Canadian. Okay. What are the biggest financial myths out there today in your opinion? You need to have a lot of money to invest. It's a big one. I think another one is that you can read everything online. There's so much free information online right now about 
personal finances. There's amazing blogs. There's amazing resources. There's online banks. You barely even have to leave your house. And so the one thing that I would say though, and maybe this is a bit biased because I am a financial planner, but anything that you read in a book or online, or even listen to in a podcast, it's all very general, right? So I'm giving you general information. I don't know anything about you. I'm giving you sweeping generalizations based on anecdotal evidence, but having somebody with training to actually take a critical look at your life and your specific constraints is so unbelievably empowering because you might have missed something, even though there's so much free, good stuff out there. And I think of it a lot like, you know, health and wellness. So I could read every health and wellness book ever. That doesn't mean I'm going to do my, the yoga pose correctly without someone being like, no, your hip is, is wrong here. And I don't know that I can't see my own blind spots. Right. So it's like, I think, I think maybe that is, is what I would say is like, I think becoming financially literate, you absolutely can do on your own. Once you have that level of literacy that makes you feel confident, getting that like customized plan is really what's going to slam home for the lack of anxiety. And having, just having another set of very skilled eyes on things, That's right. you know, there just might be something that you miss. So it makes a lot of sense to me. I wanted to come back to something really specific to caregivers. Really, it does touch on what all of us will go through, I think, eventually. But many caregivers are caring for an individual who is elderly or passing. What do caregivers need to financially think about when estate planning? Okay, so I think that you need to make sure that you both, everybody understands and has access to bank accounts, knows who other financial planners and accountants are, knows where wills are, making sure that wills are done, making sure the powers of attorney are done, having all of those things in place and really knowing if something happens and that person can't make a decision any longer, if they pass away, that you know how to jump in and pay the bills and make sure that something happens. Like, you know, who to talk to in their circle of professionals as well. It's so, so, so important to do that. So like, yeah, banking passwords, all that kind of stuff need to be shared now. And I also think that it's worth from a more of like an estate planning point is having the person that you're caregiving for sit down with a lawyer, sit down with an estate lawyer and map out what their wishes are, like what they want to do and that they're still making like an informed decision at that time. Um, So like, hopefully if it's not, if it's not too late for that piece to happen. So if anyone's listening where it's not too late, where somebody is still really like, just, I want to get everything in order in case something happens. I think it's a really good idea to have big family meetings like that and hard conversations. They are hard, but doing it now so that down the road, you have all those pieces in place. You're right. They, they are difficult. And I speak from personal experience. These are really can feel like insurmountable conversations to have challenging conversations to have, but once you do have them and once everything is put in place, it's a lot better. It it is a lot better. There's a serenity that comes with knowing that that conversation's over it's happened and that things are in place, not only for the person you're caregiving for, but also for you to not worry about them as much, right? Like, you know, that they're protected, they're okay, that they have what is in order for them to be happy. Shannon, you have given us some really valuable information today. And I think that it will be so helpful to so many people that are in the space of caregiving as part of their lives and really just for everybody in general. So I thank you for that. People are really going to, I'm sure, want to find out more about you and what you do. Where can we find you? So the best place is newschoolfinance.com or follow us on, follow me or, or us on social media. That's the best place to do it. It's kind of like the hub. Okay, fantastic. Shannon, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can access more details about support services on our website, ontariocaregiver.ca. Until next time, I'm Michelle Jobin, and you have been listening to Time to Talk, a podcast for caregivers. We hope you have a wonderful day.